It says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I want to try my best to help us figure out what Jesus is saying and uh, what, what we should do about it. So what is Jesus saying? Let me just work our way back through it again here. It says, you have heard. Now, remember, we've been talking about how um, there's the Jewish people at this time had the Old Testament, or what we, what we call the Old Testament. And uh, so they had those writings as their only scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament. They have those as their only scriptures. And in them, there were things that were written, written commands for them. Uh, but then they had uh, leaders and, and teachers within their own nation who would teach, just like I'm doing this morning, taking the scripture and then adding their own commentary to it. That's not a wrong thing to do, but I want to always emphasize that the scripture is more important than the commentary. I, can I get an amen on that? The scripture is always more important than the commentary. That's about what I'm going to say this morning. That's about what they said back then. And sometimes the commentary gets it wrong. Sometimes the commentary gets it wrong. That's true about my sermons too, okay? So I, that's why I want you to bring your Bible or read the Bible or make sure, or double check, you know? Like, that's important. The scripture's not going to be wrong though. You can always rely on the scripture. So what was happening here was... Uh, you'll see through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says at different times, it is written, or you have heard. And you can almost figure it out by that. If he says it is written, it means it's in the Bible, it's in the Old Testament. It's actually, you can go find it. And if he says you have heard, then he's actually giving you hints that he's talking about the commentary that was made, which might have been good or might not have. And after a few hundreds of years, there's a lot of commentary that's built up that people have taken sort of as gospel truth or let's say the word of God, but it wasn't actually. And so here's an example of it. Leviticus 19.18 says this whole love your neighbor thing. So you say, well, is that, was that original to Jesus? Did Jesus just say love your neighbor and that's the first time anyone heard that? No, it was, they already knew that from the Old Testament. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. So, you'll notice what's missing there, though. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Well, hate your enemy is not in that verse. In fact, uh, it's, that was the commentary that was added by the teachers. Now, I could see how you get to that. You'd say, well, God commanded us to love our neighbors, our Jewish family, fellow Jews, but it stands to reason that we wouldn't love those people who are in pagan nations who don't serve God and who's sinning all the time and doing wrong things. Because God hates sin, and he does. So wouldn't it make sense that it would be also part and parcel the hatred of the people who do sin? And that commentary got off base, and it wasn't, it wasn't accurate. So Jesus is saying, I want to tell you something new, Okay? So the Old Testament, that verse in Leviticus doesn't say hate your enemies. It says love your neighbors, but doesn't go on to talk about the other part. But people were taking that as a common thing. Love your neighbors. Hate your enemies. But I tell you, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So now here's a whole new uh, command to love. Love your enemies. Now, when you think of what the main commands that are given in the Bible, in fact, Jesus was asked this question, what's the most important commands? If you took all, everything in the Old Testament, what's the most important? And so he quotes two very important commands. He says, the first is, yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Love God, number one. And, and then he said, and the second is like it, love your, love your neighbor as yourself. So those were sort of the command number numero uno 
and then the associated command that always comes with it because once you start really loving God, he will lead you into the love that is in his heart for people, right? So you will love your neighbor. But number one is love God. That's main priority, and that will lead you into number two, which is, is uh, loving your neighbor. But here's this third one. And for a while I was looking at this and saying, wow, there really is three love commands. I mean, maybe there's more, but there's this significant love command of love your enemy, and what a radical challenge that is. But I've actually come to see that this is just sort of a subset of number two. Because how many know that you can have neighbors that are also enemies? I don't know know where you live or what your neighborhood's like or the people you rub shoulders with, but it's possible to actually have people in your life who are neighbors and enemies. Now you say, well, well, then I would just call them enemies. I wouldn't call them neighbors because they don't seem very neighborly. But you have to define neighbor by how Jesus defined neighbor. And the story that Jesus tells to define the neighbor, and I won't read it, it's Luke chapter 10, it's the story of the Good Samaritan. And a lot of the power of that story is totally lost on us today. And the reason is because none of us hate Samaritans. We're not racist towards Samaritans. We don't have animosity towards Samaritans. We don't gossip about them, we don't say nasty things about them, they don't say nasty things about us. Does anybody even know a Samaritan? So the story, the twist of the story is a man, he gets beaten up on the road and along comes a good man, a religious man, a priest, and he walks over the other side and doesn't help him. And along comes a scribe and another good man comes along, a good Jewish man, and he doesn't help him. And then along comes, this is the twist in the story, a Samaritan. And the fact that the story has been ever after been called the Good Samaritan, it's like saying, like, there was a Good Samaritan? One of those guys was good? Well, that's shocking. Because that's not how we think of them. That's not how the Jewish people thought of them. Right? But in that story, he has been asked, who is my neighbor? That's why he tells the story. Who's my neighbor? And he responds by shocking them with the story where the person who was their neighbor was their enemy. Whoa. Like if you think of any racism that exists in the world today or has existed ever, that would be the context, right? So you think of the harsh feelings that have been between nations or between ethnic groups or between... Moose Jaw and Regina. No, I'm just kidding. That one's, <laughs> We just play that one up for fun. That's not a real one. But I mean, you, you think about those hard, hard feelings of hatred. That's how, if Jesus was in your context today, that's how he'd tell the story. He'd pick the group that is despised the most by your group, and he'd make them the good hero of that story. And then he'd say, that's your neighbor, Your enemy is your neighbor. So those two commands, love God with all your heart and all your strength and all your mind and et cetera, and love your neighbor as yourself actually covers this. It actually covers love your enemy. So when you're saying, I'm just going to love God and love my neighbor, guess what? Part of that package is loving neighbors who are enemies, who make themselves enemies. How do they make themselves enemies? Well, it says in the text... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Persecute, that's the word. Persecution can come in a few different uh, flavors. Mild, medium, hot, just like salsa. And it can be, uh, it can be small, and just annoying. It can be significant, an ongoing um, hardship. Or it can be very, very severe, even to the point of people losing their lives. And that's happening in the world today. There are people today who are Christians and they're persecuted because they are Christians, because of Jesus, and even losing their lives today. In fact, people say that, and I don't doubt it, but people say that more are um, martyred for the name of Jesus in our day and age than any other time in history. So it can get very severe. And Matthew, early on in, in this chapter of Matthew 5, Jesus says some very interesting things about persecution. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, okay, insult you. Maybe that's more the mild version of persecution. Insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. In the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So they insult you, they persecute you, and they, they lie about you. They say all manner of evil things about you. They gossip and slander your name. And if you've experienced that, you know how painful that really is, to have your reputation destroyed falsely. If you've ever experienced it, you know it's, a, it's an it's absolutely terrible experience. So this is part of this persecution. So in light of that people are doing these things, why should I, as a worshiper of the God of the Bible, as a follower of Jesus, love my enemies? Convince me. You've described these people and they don't sound real nice and I don't know why I should love them. Well, let me just jump into with the next verse. It says in verse 45, love your enemies, but here's what it, where it goes to, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. In heaven. Now, I want to give a quick warning about this because it, I think this can easily be mis- misunderstood. I think some people would say, oh, so in order to become a child of God, I have to love my enemies. And I don't think that that's exactly, in fact, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think he's saying this is how you become my child or this is how you get into the kingdom. Remember, this whole talk that Jesus is doing is talking about his kingdom. And people have gathered up on the side of a hillside to hear about his kingdom. And they're probably hoping at some point there'll be a great reveal that this kingdom will raise up arms and overthrow the Roman kingdom that holds them in captivity. But Jesus is talking about a kingdom that's not of this earth, a very different kingdom, with him as the king, with us as his subjects or his followers. And, uh, and here are some of the details of how we can live as citizens of this kingdom. So... This isn't how you get into the kingdom, but this is how you show that God is your father. So if God is your father, this is, how you, this is one of the ways in which you show uh, this. So how does our father in heaven show love for those who do evil and unrighteous acts? Or how does God love his enemies? In fact, we'd say that Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of loving his enemies. And God is the ultimate expert at loving enemies. And so here's some of the the proofs that we have that he's good at that. The next verse says, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So what is that? Well, sun and rain are both provision. If you're a farmer, you know that. You know that, man, we need some sun. Yeah, now we need some rain. Now we need some sun again. It's provision. And he says he provides these things not just for the good, but also for those who do evil. And he sends rain not just on the righteous, but also on the unrighteous. So God is providing the needs of his enemies. So there might be people who shake their fist at God and, or deny his existence or are indifferent towards him or they have not made him their treasure but they've made everything else their treasure. They may curse his name and he still sends the sun and the rain. He still provides their needs. Romans 12, 19 to 21 talks a little bit about how we can be like God in this way. It says, don't take revenge, my dear friends. This is sounding a lot like uh, Pastor Doug's sermon from last week, but it all ties together. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So God sends the sun and rain on his enemies, but we are called to feed and give something to drink to ours. Or maybe this is just a general way of saying we're called to provide their needs. We're called to provide practical needs in their lives. That's one of the ways that we love our enemies. Luke 6, 27 says a little bit, uh, uh, I like the concise statement there. This is Jesus again. He says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So you see, do good in there, so actual practical actions, but also 
bless them. That's say good. That's to say good things about them. Um, who's the guy? I'm losing the... He wrote uh, How to Win Friends and... Dale Carnegie. How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's like an ancient book from, I don't know, the 1920s or something. It's a really old book. I was just skimming it. I had a copy of it on my shelf, and I was skipping it again. One of the things he says in there is, never say anything negative about anyone ever. That's one of his rules of life, Dale Carnegie. I was like, wow, that would win friends and influence people, because who can do that? I was like, Dale Carnegie, wow, that's amazing. Now, I, I think he was a Christian, but I'm not totally sure on that. But bless those who curse you? Wow, that's hard. Do good to those who hate you? That's hard. Pray for those who mistreat you? That's hard. But at least, at least we're getting the blueprint. At least we're getting some of the action steps. Now, we'll get to the how in a bit, but, but right now we're getting uh, some of the action steps along with why. And one of the first whys, we already talked about it, we already read it, is that it shows that you're a child of the Father. It shows that you're a child of your Father. How many of you have mannerisms in your life that you picked up from your parents? Mannerisms, sayings, habits, the way you walk, the way you, come on, admit it. You're saying, no, no, I got nothing from my parents. I'm my own person. <laughs> That's not true. Yeah. We picked up stuff from our parents. People might be able to spot us. Say, hey, are you such and such son or daughter? Because I spot in you something that I think you got from them. Well, spiritually, people should be able to see that about us in this area. Say, man, because of what I understand about God, that he loves his enemies, that God the Father sent, his, sent Jesus the Son to die for his enemies, that while his enemies were even crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was forgiving his enemies as they were killing him. Can anyone do better at that than loving your enemies? That's incredible. That's incredible. You know what? That, that kind of love for enemies starts showing you that you got it from somebody else. You got it from somebody else. You know what? The first Christian that was killed after Jesus, who was that? He was... Stephen, yeah, Stephen, okay? The first Christian martyr was Stephen. When he was being killed, he basically, it's not verbatim, but he basically repeats those same words. He was not being crucified, he was being stoned to death. So you can imagine getting pelted by big rocks, and one of these is going to take you out. One of them will finally probably hit you in the head, and you will not be there anymore. So as he's being you know, having these stones rain down on him, he says, don't, like, God, don't hold this against them. Basically, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Now, if people heard that and they were at the crucifixion, they might go, oh, wait, 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 wait. When that happened around Jesus, we'd never heard that before. We've never seen anyone crucified cry out for the forgiveness of the people who are crucifying him. And now it's happening again. I think we can connect the dots here. This, Stephen got this from Jesus. This love for enemies, he didn't come up with it on his own. This isn't just because Stephen's a really nice chap. This is because he's imitating his father, his father in heaven. So when we love our enemies, it's a chance to show how good and kind God is to his enemies. How good and merciful he is. So that's one of the reasons why we are to call to love our enemies. Because we reveal something about how God is. Let me just give you a few verses that talk about God and his mercy. Matthew 5.25 is the one we've looked at. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Then Psalm 103.10 says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That's how compassionate he is. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
So when Christians live this way, by God's power, we show something, we show something about what God is like. Now the second reason that I think, the second why we should love our enemies is that when the hearts, is that we show something else about God. The first thing is we show that he's merciful, that he loves his enemies. But the second thing is we show that he's satisfying. He's satisfying. And for that, I would have to dip back into those verses that we've already read about persecution, which is um, Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Why would you be blessed to be persecuted? Why would you be happy to be persecuted? That sounds perverse and twisted. But if you know how great your reward in heaven is, I mean, sometimes people say, that person's so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Right? They just got their head in the clouds. They're not, you know, they're not living in the here and now. They're just thinking about heaven all and Jesus and God. And, and you know, you know we got to live here on this earth. But you know what? Our thoughts about heaven have profound effect on how we live here on earth. Profound effect. And Jesus is spelling that out. When you know my reward's already secured in heaven, now I, suddenly, all the stuff on earth, that's not my treasure anymore. That's not what I live for anymore. In fact, if that was taken away, I still have the, I still can be happy. I still can be joyful. I can still be satisfied because my treasure is untouchable. And so a great example is in the book of Hebrews where, where the author of Hebrews writes to them and, and talks about how they responded when they faced persecution. And the persecution they faced was they lost all their stuff. They lost everything, all their worldly goods. And this is what it says, Hebrews uh, chapter 16, is that 16, verse 34? 10, 34. It says, you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Wow, how do you get to the point where you could joyfully accept the confiscation of your property? Let's say the soldiers or police or someone, they come to you and they evict you from your house and it's not your house anymore. They come they impound your car, it's not your car anymore. And your bank account is frozen and you have nothing. How do you get to joy in that circumstance? It sounds pretty severe. How do you get there? The text tells us. Let me read it again. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So if you know that what Jesus, that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you, and you know it's going to be awesome, and you know that eternity is secured for you with God, you can live differently here. You can live radically differently here. If you know that. And so someone treats you bad, even to the point of stealing your stuff or, or taking your stuff, and it's unjust, and it's, it's not fair... You've been wronged. It doesn't mean that the source of your happiness is gone if your treasure is in heaven, not on earth. And in the early church, that was tested in real time with real people just like you and me who lost their property because they were followers of Jesus. And the report that came back to the writer of Hebrews was, these guys are still joyful because they know they have an eternal possessions that are better and, la and la more lasting. So, when you love your enemies, you do two things. You say, hey, this is how God is. God is merciful. God uh, responds with love towards his enemies. And you're also saying, and God is so satisfying 
I have everything I need in God. And so you can take everything I have here and I'm still rich. I'm still rich. I'm still an heir of eternal life. You can't ever take that away from me. That's the source of my, my ongoing happiness, not this stuff. Now, I want to give you, one, I want to give you a third reason for uh, um, loving your enemies. And I, I'm, I'm just going to bring in a guest speaker. Martin Luther King Jr. happened to be available on YouTube. And uh, so we're going to listen to him a little bit speak on this. And he gives a third reason, and I think it's a pretty good reason. Um, and uh, so just about five minutes of Martin Luther King Jr. this morning, just to mix up the, the speakers. And, um, and uh, he had a lot of enemies in the civil rights movement. He had a lot of enemies. And uh, anyhow, let's let, let's let him speak about loving your enemies. Final reason I think that Jesus says love your enemies. It is this. That love has within it. Can I jump back in? Can we? Can you get the subtitles on it? Is that possible to just turn the subtitles on? If you really, <laughs> okay. I watched it with subtitles. You'll just have to have very good ears, okay? So I, the same video, it can be done with subtitles, but I'm not sure. I can't give instructions on how to do that. So. And I think that Jesus says, love your enemies. It is this. That love has within it a redemptive power. And that is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. You just keep loving people and keep loving them, even though they are mistreating you. Here's a person who is a neighbor, and this person is doing something wrong to you, and all of that. Just keep being friendly to that person. Keep loving them. Don't do anything to embarrass them. Just keep loving them. And they can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with bitterness because they are mad because you love them like that. They react with guilt feelings. And sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period. But just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It is redemptive. And this is why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up. And it's creative. There is something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So love your enemies. And I'm proud to stand here in Dexter this morning and say that that army is still marching. It grew up from a group of 11 or 12 men to more than 700 million today because of the power influence of the personality of this Christ, he was able to split history into A.D. and B.C. Because of his power, he was able to shake the hinges from the gates of the Roman Empire. And all around the world this morning, we can hear the glad echo of heaven ring. Jesus shall reign wherever some of his successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore. The moon shall wane and wax no more. We can hear another chorus singing, all hail the power of Jesus' name. We can hear another chorus singing, hallelujah, hallelujah. He's king of kings and lord of lords, hallelujah, hallelujah. We can hear another choir singing, in Christ there is no east or west, in him no north or south. But one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide world, this is the only way. 
that love is the only creative, redemptive, transforming power in the universe. So this morning, as I look into your eyes and into the eyes of all my brothers in Alabama and all over America and over the world, I say to you, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. And I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love somewhere, men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed. And then we will be in God's kingdom. We will be able to matriculate into the university of eternal life because we had the power to love our enemies, to bless those persons that cursed us, to even decide to be good to those persons who hated us, and we even prayed for those persons who despitefully used us. Oh, God, help us in our lives and in all of our attitudes to work out this controlling force of love, this controlling power that can solve every problem that we confront in all areas. Oh, we talk about politics. We talk about the problems facing our atomic civilization. Granted, all men will come together and discover that at the cross of Christ we will solve these problems. The international problems, the problems of atomic energy, problems of nuclear energy, yes, even the race problem. Let us join together in a great fellowship of love and bow down at the feet of Jesus. Give us this strong determination. In the name and spirit of this Christ we pray. Amen. if you could have, could hear all that, and I know some of us could or couldn't read it, depending on where you're seated here, but uh, just found out the reason that he gives is that you can turn, through love, you can turn an enemy into a friend. I mean, that's, he gives more of that, but he, he, he anchors it all, and this is something that sometimes people miss. They think of these great heroes, you know, and they, they just sort of, by their own gumption and their own idea, you know, took on the, the you know, the the big problems of the day. This was all rooted in, this is all rooted in recognizing that this is Jesus' teaching, this is Jesus' leadership. I love at the end where he just says, you know, he just starts quoting hymns, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Everybody's going to bow at the knees, of, at the feet of Jesus. He says all those things at the end. I, and I just, this is, not just something that I, I don't know how you love your enemies without Jesus. Let me say it that way. I don't know how you do it without Jesus. If you don't have a hope in heaven, I don't know how you love your enemies. Because if you don't have a hope in heaven, all you got is this life. All you got is this life. And so when someone does you unjustly, or steals your possessions, you're going to fight tooth and nail for that. Because it's your life. Sometimes people say, wow, it was great, that civil rights movement. You know what? It was a preacher. People forget who he was. People forget what he was leaning into what he was depending on. It was the teachings of Jesus that empowered his message and that enabled him to, to make an impact. I don't agree with Martin Luther King Jr. in all the areas of theology, but when he points back to Jesus, he points back very powerfully. It's, it's, this, it's this kingdom that Jesus is building that's not of this world, that's very dramatically different, where people... Uh, submit to his leadership in their lives, and they say, if you, because, now how do people get into the kingdom? They get into the kingdom by recognizing that God loved them first, that when we were God's enemies, he loved us. So how do we love our enemies? In the same way, we say, I've been loved. I was God's enemy. That's why I've said this many times, and you might find it strange that I keep saying it, but it's really good to know you're a sinner. You say, well, that sounds discouraging. No, it's just super good to know. Now, if you, there was no Savior, 
it would just be super discouraging. But if you know you're a sinner and then you encounter Jesus and know that he wants to forgive you, he wants to break the power of sin off of your life, he wants to lead you in a whole new life with him, then it's good news. But if you don't know that you're a sinner, then this news is something to yawn at. It's like, oh, that's nice. Jesus loves me. Ah, that's cool. But it won't have the transformative power in your life to actually uh, tackle big challenges like people who position themselves as your enemies. It won't have that power. Unless you knew you were once God's enemy. Maybe you were indifferent. Maybe you were hostile towards God. Maybe it's just that you treasured everything but God. But when you were in that condition, he loved you. And went to the cross to die for you, to take all of your sins upon himself. So that you could be right with God. I love the word justified. It's a theological word, but I've been loving it more lately. Because of what happened on the cross, because of what Jesus did, People could be justified. And justified means that it's, this is the easy way I have of remembering it. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Well, how is that possible? Well, because Jesus never sinned. And when he went to the cross, what he had, complete and total righteousness, absolutely just, good all the time, Jesus. He had his pure innocence before God. His righteousness was credited to us As we believe in him, his righteousness is credited to us and his sin to him. It's a great exchange. It's it's hard to believe. And so we become righteous. That's why when you get to the end and you get this verse that says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, you'd go, whoa, I'm going to just despair about that because I can't be perfect. But there's two parts of it. There's two parts of becoming perfect. One is Jesus was and made his position before God, our position before God. We receive it by faith. We trust in it. We look, we trust in what Jesus did on the cross for that to happen. So positionally, we become righteous. But here's the other part, is God is not satisfied to, when he brings you into his family, he's not satisfied with just leaving you there unchanged on the inside. But he begins to do the work inside of our hearts to change us to become like him in his character. So there's a perfection work that's already been accomplished through the cross. His righteousness exchanged for our sin. So positionally, identity-wise, we stand before God righteous. You know, we sang that song earlier, I am who you say I am. And that's true. You say I'm a child of God because of what Jesus did? Then that's true if God says that. You say I'm an ambassador of Uh, reconciliation in this world because of what Jesus did, then that's true. Those things are accomplished. They're finished. But there's an ongoing work yet to be done. And that's a work, big word, sanctification, where God wants to make you more and more in your character like Jesus. And that's a work yet to, to, to happen. And so when you experience having an enemy, you have two recourses. One is to say, Okay, I heard a pep talk at church that I should love them. Why? Shucks, I'm a good person. I'll do that. I don't think that will take you as far as you need to go. I think that'll run out of gas fast. Now, if you've never had an enemy, you just have to take my word for it. I never had an enemy until I was a pastor. (laughs) My first church had a lot of conflict in it. And I learned that I don't forgive easy. And I learned that I bottle up bitterness. And I learned that if I'm just depending on me being a good person, I'm never going to get to the finish line of actually forgiving. Because the feelings of being unjustly dealt with are very, very potent and real. 
Last week, Doug was talking about giving up revenge. That's, the, that's part of the, the process of forgiveness, is being able to give up revenge. And yet you say, but it's, the injustice is just hanging in the air. You know what? I want to tell you, there is no sin that will not be dealt with. If you've been sinned against, and that's where you say, I've been wrong, that's what it is, right? If you've been sinned against, there's no sin that won't be dealt with. I mean, it's sort of, it's rough to think about it, but it's either dealt with on the cross or it'll be dealt with in eternity. It'll all be dealt with. But you don't have Jesus. You aren't thinking from a biblical worldview. You don't have that. So you have to hang on to your injustices. I mean, you might choose to forgive because it's therapeutic or it's good for you and, and it would help you. And those are all good reasons. And I read that all the time when I go online and read about forgiveness. And so you don't have to be a Christian to, to embrace the concept that forgiveness is good for you. But how do you have the power is the question. How do you have the power to forgive? And I want to tell you, there's two things I always keep coming back to again and again. One is it's not just unless Jesus has tipped the scales of justice. But he has irrevocably tipped the scales of justice in my favor forever by going to the cross. That is so unfair that Jesus died for my sin. I should have died. I should have been eternally separated from God. Yet he did something that doesn't, I didn't earn and I couldn't deserve. And, and it's, it's paid the, he's paid the price. And I can receive it simply by faith as a gift from God. A costly gift. His blood shed. It's not cheap. It's costly. But it's a gift. And so God put his finger on the scale. Whereas if you looked at all my sin and you just said, man, there's no way this guy can ever be right with God. And God put his finger on the scale and he changed it. So when I go to forgive someone or I go to love someone who's actually cursed me, persecuted, lied about me, slandered me, mistreated me, and stole my possessions, whatever it is, there's something on the other end of the scale that says this is justice. In fact, I'm still walking neck deep in mercy and grace when I forgive that person because of how much mercy and grace God has shown me. So it's just, this is the thing, you go to forgive without Jesus, you're going to have to have the fact that the injustice is hanging in the air. But if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you understand what he's done for you, that's changed. You won't say, I'm a great victim, you'll say, I've been greatly blessed. Because Jesus changed that reality about you on the cross. The second thing is, he offers his power. You say, I just can't forgive. Every time I think about this person, I'm full of rage and bitterness and anger. They've done me wrong, and I just, I, it's not in me. I don't have any warmth or feelings of love, and join the club. But there's the power of God. A few years ago, I did a, I wanted to, you know, I think I, I don't know, it was one of those seasons, I think, um, I had a sermon series on forgiveness, and uh, I went real slow through this series. So I'd gone a couple messages in, and I got an email from somebody, and they said, you know, it's sort of a nice series we're going through, but I could have got this from Dr. Phil. <laughs> so after I forgave them, <laughs> no, but they were right, actually. I looked back on it, and I realized, anyone can teach you that forgiveness is good for you. But where do you go to actually accomplish the task? You have to go to God. Jesus said some really insightful things about our condition. He said, I've come, I'm like a doctor that's come for the sick. It's the sick that need a doctor. So you've got to recognize I'm sick. The beginning part of um, the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You want to experience the power of living under the kingly rule of Jesus, the power to love your enemies? It starts with an admission. I'm poor in spirit. I don't bring to the table what it takes to live for God. I actually need his power in my life to do it. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. We need Jesus. 
to love our enemies. I'm making it, I'm making the point again and again and again because I just don't want you to depend on your own goodness because you're going to be frustrated and mad and angry and bitter and you say, this doesn't work. And you're right, it doesn't work without Jesus. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced of that. So draw down on Jesus. Draw down on what he has done. Understand that you were the enemy that he forgave. In the equation of your life, you're the first enemy he forgave. You're the first enemy he loved. Now pay it forward. Now enter into relationships with very difficult, prickly people. Crying out to God and saying, it's not in me, God, that I'm going to be able to love this person, but you did it on the cross. And so you in me is what I'm relying on. I often I'll go back to 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patience, love is kind, love is, does not boast, it's not easily, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The whole thing's about love in there. And I just read it three times. This is how I get into the right frame of mind. I read it three times. I say, love, yeah, that's exactly what love is. And then I, the second, no, yeah, second, first time through, I read, put Jesus in the word of love. Jesus is kind, Jesus is patient, Jesus is loving, et cetera, et cetera. I, yeah, of course he is. Then I read it with my name in there. Steve is, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. It's sort of discouraging. And then the third time I read it and I read it, Jesus in Steve is kind. Jesus in Steve suffers long. He's patient. And that's the great hope that we have. The power of God to see us change on the inside out. You know, I have a, I have a two-year-old in my house and she, uh, I started saying something about her destiny that my wife finds silly. Um, and it's sort of silly. We have, we just bought a new house and our house is sort of like the old one. It's got a center section you can run around, which is great when you have kids. Anyone grew up in a house where you could run around your main floor? Anyhow, oh, only eight of you. Okay, sad for the rest of you. Anyhow, so, uh, anyhow, so our two-year-old, she will... Uh, take off running, I'll get, oh, daddy's going to get you, and she'll take off running. And it is the cutest run. And why it's so cute is that she's two, but she still has her baby belly. Like, she still has this belly. So she, she runs like this, you know, with her belly sticking out, like, as a counterweight. You know, and she runs like this, and then can look back to see if you're following. It's really funny, the angle at which she runs. But she's pretty fast. And so I always say, you're a sprinter. You're a sprinter. You're such a sprinter. You're so fast. And then we run around, and we usually go about three times around, and then she collapses on the living room on the shag rug from 1977. And, uh, and I get down there with her, and i like, oh, daddy got you, and whatever. We have this little wrestle time. And then it's like we have to breathe heavy for a bit because we're both tired. And then she just sort of perks up, sits up, stands up, She's looking at me and takes off again. And then it's like, ah, daddy's going to get you. And I chase her again. And it's just so cute. And, you know, she just, she's laughing while she's running. But it's just, I laugh while we're running because just that belly out front, head out back. Are you, are you following me? You know, she's just so funny. I love it. I was like, you're a sprinter. You're a sprinter. You're going to be a great sprinter. You're going to be in the Olympics. You know, you're going to be amazing, you know. Now, can you imagine if a few years down the road, we just do this for years. Let's just say we do this for years. And she just hears all the time, you're a sprinter. You're so fast. You're so amazing. I love you. And this is her area where, and she just loves us. In fact, let's just say this is the special thing she does with daddy. I don't know if it'll become this, whatever. And she just is like, at some point, she's probably going to internalize that message and go, I am a sprinter. I am fast. And you know what? That identity-shaping piece will shape her behavior. She's going to start saying, what age can I join track and field, Daddy? Are there any boys in the neighborhood I haven't beat yet? You know, what do I have to eat in order to be faster? How can I, uh, how can I be like those ladies I see on TV in the Olympics where they start with their hands down? Teach me how to do that. Said, because that's what happens. When you identify a certain way, you start acting along with it. It's the same way in this way. As God tells us, you're my child. You're an ambassador or you're a representative of the reconciliation I want to bring to the world. Reconciliation between man and God, people and God. Also reconciliation horizontally. You're a representative of that reconciliation. When you start to internalize that and treasure it. See, right now, 
Our two-year-old delights in sprinting. She delights in it. If you delight yourself in the Lord, you delight yourself in that relationship with him, you really get joy out of who he is. You find yourself lost in worship because you're just like, you are great. You've done such a wonderful thing. What was the words of that song at the very beginning? I just wrote them down. I just read them again. When I was your foe, you, your love still fought for me. When that becomes your delight, then you're going to want to act in line with that. In fact, I don't even know if it's going to be necessarily always a choice of the will. I think you're going to start to go, oh, this is what we do, Father. This is what we do, Daddy. This is what we do. We love our enemies just like you loved me when I was your enemy. This is what we do. We love our enemies. So let's get to the practicalities at the very end, and I'll leave you with this. Jesus gives us different words of actions to do, and I don't think it's an exhaustive list, but you better start with Jesus' list because it's a good one. Uh, he, He says, do you only greet those who are your friends? Anybody does that. Everybody does that. So that tells us something. If you've got an enemy and you want to be like your father in heaven, you want to show how good he is and how satisfying he is, then greet those people that are your enemies. That would be a first basic step. You say, well, when I come into a room and I see that my enemy is there or the people is treated me badly, and maybe there's just a temporary enemy. You know, it's your, someone in your family this morning became your enemy, but, you know, it's not a long-term condition, but still, you have a tendency to shun them or avoid them. Greet them. Greet them. Don't avoid them. Go out of your way to to come with a cheerful and positive, whatever you can do, greeting. That's a great way to begin. So greet them. And then here's the other one. When you speak about them, bless them. Bless those who curse you, Jesus said. So bless them. So find ways to speak positively about them. Sometimes you might really struggle. You say, I can't think of anything positive about that person. That's legit. So just edit a lot of the negative that you would be saying about them and try to be congenial. Okay, that's a good thing. Again, I'm telling you the steps to take. I'm saying you still need to cry out for God to empower this so it's real. You'll need his power to do this. Then meet their practical needs. Jesus said you find your enemy and they're hungry, feed them. You find them thirsty, give them something to drink. Well, there's probably other things. You see your enemy's car is on the side of the road and they need a boost. Don't drive by and laugh. Pull over and meet that personal need. Martin Luther King said that you might be able to turn an enemy into a friend. And finally, pray for them. Pray for them. I'm going to steal this one from John Piper. I thought it was a really good idea. He said, the place to start praying for your enemies is the prayer that the Lord taught us to pray. So the Lord's Prayer is a prayer that many of you would have, depending on your age, you would have prayed in school growing up, or you may have heard it in church settings, and, and, I think, and even at funerals or other things, you might have heard people praying this prayer. And I think what we should do is I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us to re- read the Lord's Prayer together and pray it. And then I want to read through, this is what John Piper wrote about each section of the prayer as an example of how to pray for your enemies. And we'll end with that. Okay? So let's just pull up the Lord's Prayer here. It's, okay. So, and it, we always recite it in the King James Version because that's what everyone memorized. And if you try any other version, it goes clunky on you for some reason. It doesn't work. So, but uh, can I get you to stand with me? And let's just recite, let's just read this together and pray this together. Some of you have this by memory and you don't need to read it. But uh, let's, just, let's just say this together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom 
power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now I'll just read you the prayer that was written. Father, grant that my enemies, my colleague who snubs me, my wife who belittles me, my child who disrespects me, grant that they would come to hallow your name. Grant that they would treasure you above all and reverence you and admire you more than anything. Father, grant that my enemies would come under the saving, purifying sway of your kingly rule and that you would exert your kingly power to make my enemies your own loyal subjects. Grant, Father, that my enemies would love to do your will the way the angels do it in heaven with all their might and without reservation and with the purest motives and with great joy. Grant, Father, that my enemies would have all the physical resources of food and clothing and shelter and education and health care and transportation that they need to fulfill your calling on their lives. And forgive my enemies their sins as you bring them to repentance and make them forgiving people and protect them from overpowering temptation and from the destructive power of the devil. Amen. Lord, we admit, we admit, I, I know for some people this morning that uh, this is a very hard message to hear because it, it touches home on a relationship that has been hard to uh, engage in anything that we would call love. And so I know for some this is very hard. And then for others, this is very abstract. There really isn't anyone who really stands out as an enemy in their life right now. And so it's just sort of like, okay, those are good concepts. But Lord, I pray that you make it very real for all of us what you've done for us. I pray that power is always available to us, a fresh sense of the potency of the good news of the gospel. You saw us as sinners without any way out, without any way to make ourselves right before you, and you had mercy on us. You had mercy on us. And you have not just uh, pardoned us. You've not just pardoned us and said, well, now you're not a sinner anymore. But you, you've gone all the way to make us sons and daughters of you. You've made us family. And so to go from enemies to, be, to family is such a radical transformation. Lord, would you let it sink in deeper and deeper into our minds and our hearts what you've done for us. I pray that we would not live our lives without the power of this truth. Lord, we don't want to be impotent disciples. We don't want to lack the, the reality of, this, of these truths in our lives so that we come into situations and we can't draw on that because somehow we haven't reckoned with what you've done. I pray the full... I pray a fuller, I, I don't know if we'll ever get to full, but I pray for a fuller understanding of what you did for us on the cross would come to us so that we, when we are called to live radically for you, we draw back on how you, live, how you lived and died radically for us. Lord, I thank you that you are calling your sons and daughters to look like you in the world. It's a high call, it's a hard call, it's a real call. But I pray that we'd be uh, responsive in our hearts. We'd say yes. Even though we don't know all the twists and turns that yes requires, we, don't, we know who you are. and We know that you're good and that everything that you have in store for us is, even though it might not be easy, even though it might be one of the hardest things we've done, it is good. It's truly good because you are good. And so, Lord, we, we want to embrace you as our ultimate treasure. We want to push to the side things that are, are, are chirping at us to be more important than you. Uh, Lord, we just want to embrace you today. Thank you for your hard but truthful words in the Sermon on the Mount. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to do one more just worship song together, worship the Lord. Prayer teams are going to be here. And then it's a picnic at Elgin Park today. It's our, our newcomer's picnic. So everyone's welcome. If you're 
Bring whatever food you want to eat. If you just want to go home and slop together peanut butter sandwiches, go for it. Just bring whatever you want to eat. But it's a great time to be together, to interact, get to know some people you haven't not known before, and, uh, and to really fellowship together. But if you need someone to pray with you this morning, don't rush off. Prayer teams will be available, and uh, we'd love to pray with you today. God bless you. You're officially dismissed.